Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed working-class literature and the internal life of women, learned about the pandemic in Africa, and heard radical new music from one of America's premier crossword creators. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for October 16, 2020. I-94 chatted with Irish author Wendy Erskine about her new collection, Sweet Home, which has been shortlisted for the Edge Hill and the Booker. Erskine discusses the attraction of working-class life, why she started writing late in life, and how much chance plays into her work. I-94, Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And today we're thrilled to have the author of Sweet Home. It is a new collection. It's out on Picador. They sent it to us by airmail, which is really nice of them. Wow. Uh, And she's coming to us from Belfast. Wendy Erskine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Lovely to be here. Can you talk a little bit about why you focused on this certain set of people uh, for this collection of stories? Certainly, yes. So, yes. So, these are these are ten stories with a fairly kind of circumscribed locale, I suppose you would say. You know, everything would take place within the same, um, I don't know, a couple of streets, maybe within a sort of a mile radius or whatever. And I suppose what I what I wanted to do in a purely pragmatic, really practical way, um, I was wanting to write, and I wasn't having, I wasn't wanting to have to go away and do any research that I wasn't going to have to look at the political situation in some country or whatever, um, and so that I. I could just draw basically on my on my own um, environment, but also beyond that, I think uh, I think just what you're saying that there's an overrepresentation of some sorts of people in literature. I mean, you know, if if you look at it, there's so many stories about writers, there's so many stories about people who are involved in, you know, you know, life on campus, whatever. And I I I just I suppose um, I'm interested in a range of different people's stories. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily rule out those those sorts of people, um, people in you know universities, people on acting courses, you know, writers. I'm not saying that their their experience isn't is is not necessarily interesting, but um, I suppose I'm interested in the inner lives of, um, as you say, people who work in nail bars and people who are social workers, people who are primary school teachers. And I remember somebody said to me at, at one of the events that I did, um, do you think you'll be able to move beyond these people? Do you think you'll be able to move beyond these people and beyond these Belfast, which is really the sort of palette, I suppose, that I'm using? And I thought that was a, an interesting thing to say, but also a very revealing thing to say, because it sort of presupposes that beyond this particular milieu, there are people with more interesting lives. Um, I mean, I personally feel that you know, looking at people who run nail bars, looking at local hoodlums, looking at, um, you know, a guy who works in a shop in the town. Basically, that's that's a pretty rich human experience in terms of, you know, alienation or in terms of loneliness, in terms of relationships that have gone wrong. You know, if, if I was able to move beyond this East Belfast, I don't really know what more I would actually be getting. But I suppose there's always the idea that, that people who live elsewhere, people who live in, I don't know, maybe you would even say cool, cool places, that their problems are more complex, <laughs> that their lives, you know, life's harder, more difficult, more interesting, all the rest of it. And I basically think that's uh, just not true. And certainly I got the impression from this in the way that you talked about the male characters, um, you know, there were several times when I kind of had a, there was like a little tingle in the back of my head and I said, oh, you know, the the, the main character of this story knows that her dad or, you know, her brother or her, her friend absolutely has no clue what her life is really like. 
And, and to me, that was a really rewarding and revealing thing. Yeah, that's a lovely. That's a lovely thing to hear. And I suppose you know, I am. Uh, I suppose one of the things I'm interested in is how unknowable we are to to each other, really, at all times, even within a microcosm of a home. You know, that's that story that you're you're picking out there. That um, the one about the um, about Kim Castles and the one about the the girl who knows that her friend is having an affair with her with her mom's partner. You know, those people are in such close proximity in a home, and yet they just have no idea whatsoever what is happening in, in the minds of, of each other. And I suppose one of the things I just keep returning to over and over again is just how how unknowable um, people are to each other really and you know that's that's interesting that you're saying it from the the perspective that the that the male characters are unaware of the lives of the um of of the women of of, of the female members of the families but I would hope it would also be as well that the men are just almost as unknowable to each other as the as as the women are to the men I think this uh collection focus a lot on social class as we've been as we've been referencing as we talk I was thinking more about Lucia Berlin her stories oh, yeah are, Lucia Berlin yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she's she's an American writer I don't know if you're familiar with her but at any rate it I've always found when I'm reading literature from over on your guys side it's way more class focused here we're in America we're obsessed with race everything is about race and uh, particularly now with all the the things that have been happening here but did you grow up in a community uh, like this in Belfast, this this mile radius that you were talking about earlier? Is this is this your background? I, the reason I ask is, Jamie, Mike, and I we all come from working class backgrounds, and we're not get, we're not academics, so that's um, yeah. And I think that's maybe why there was such a relatability for us. Yeah, well, I suppose I've lived here for about, I've lived in this in this environment for about 20 years. And my family, my grandparents and so on also came from this area. Um, where I actually um, grew up was on the other side of Belfast, which is probably a more, I would say probably a more, a more middle class um, place than, um, than, than this would be. Um, but yeah, I just see so much just through the prism of the prism of class, really. And I mean, the the story that the collection takes its name from, "Sweet Home." I mean, to me, that's a story where where class is basically central in terms of how the um, of how the characters interact with each other. And that that story, "Sweet Home," was taken from um, it's basically based pretty much entirely on the Chekhov story, "New Villa." Um, which I think is a, a really, really interesting um, examination of how um, of how class operates and how, in some ways, people prefer um, they, they they can nearly get their head round a kind of a a, a sort of a, a harsh master than they can one who so who shows them some sort of um, you know compassion. The person's a mug, the, the master that shows compassion. Wendy, I wanted to get back to uh, what you were saying about unknowability or being unknowable. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed in a lot of the stories was that we we meet the characters, a lot of characters at one point in their lives, and then usually in the middle of the story we'll travel back in their narration to some memory they have or uh, some flashback that the, the third-person narrator is telling Mm -hmm. us and we find something out about their past so Mm -hmm. not only are parts of us unknowable but depending on which order we find out what facts about you might 
shape how we view a person or a character. And it makes me think of the story near the end, 77 Pop Facts You Didn't Know About Gil Courtney. Mm-hmm. And that, that was an interesting one to me. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about there in terms of how you decided to format it, um, who, mm-hmm. the, who the character is. Um, could, you, could you talk a bit about that story? Yeah, cer- certainly. I mean, that I think that's so so interesting what you say about what I'm trying to do with with people's with people's pasts because I suppose what I'm always trying to do with all of my stories is that I'm trying to run two or three or maybe maybe even more than two or three different timelines um, simultaneously. And I suppose um, the the idea is that often the the present is no more important than what's than what's happened in the past. So I'm trying not at times to privilege. The, the present timeline, I mean, two people can meet and have a cup of tea and it's all pretty mundane, but what's significant about the situation is what has happened in the in in the past, maybe between these people, and that's what adds meaning to the present, but also as well the, the idea that we're never just living totally in the present, you know, even now maybe as you're speaking to me, you're maybe anticipating what you're going to be doing later on in the day or, you know, things from the past are also impinging on, on, on the present moment, the, the present action now. Um, but yeah, this, the 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 seventy seven pop facts one about Gil Courtney is a story really that I just have a a lot of a lot of affection for. Um, what I was trying to do was just um, trace the life of someone who some people might regard as a total failure. This is a sort of a pop star monkey type, you know, of you know of a kind that there's just so many individuals that you could say fit the bill. You know, the person of talent the person of ability, but for whatever reason, whether it was chance or personal circumstances or, you know, personal frailties, um, they've ended up not being, in inverted commas, a, a success. And so this is a kind of a sort of Sid Barrett-style character from East Belfast who has um, had a limited amount of success and then basically um, returns home again Um eventually just to uh to die but what i was trying to explore and that some people have found it like a funny story or a quirky story or i don't know almost maybe a, a sort of a, a novelty story but my, what i was trying to examine there really was the whole idea of how important is it that art has a has much of an audience um you know here's a person that that produced music that was only really accessed by a few people and only absolutely adored and loved by it by a small number does that does that, you know, make what he did, you know, not legitimate? Um, you know, that some of the other people who surrounded him thought he would have been better off not bothering whatsoever because um, what did he ever, um, ever achieve? So it's actually what a, the, the album that the guy released, um, fake, fake released, um, Volante Blue, was what I originally wanted to call the, I wanted to call the collection. Um, so I wanted to name it after Gil Courtney's flop album, um, but then the people um, at the publishers were saying it's not really a very sort of it's not a great start um, that you're you're going to be oh, naming collection like after a flop. Um, but that, <laughs> that, those are my thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. 
Chuck Mertz chatted with economist Fathil Kabalb and Ndongo Sambasila about how the pandemic is hitting Africa. The continent is suffering silently from COVID-19 as attention is focusing largely on Europe, Asia, and America. Kabalb and Sila argue that this is due to the inability of African nations to actually control their finances. This is Hell airs Sundays at 10 a.m. So far, Africa has been fortunate to not have had the kind of coronavirus outbreak that the rest of the world is experiencing. But if and most likely when the pandemic lands on the continent's shores, the virus will find an Africa that does not have control over its own economy, does not have control over its own money, leaving it poorly equipped to face the challenge of a deadly disease. Here to help us understand why Africa is in such a position and why it needs more sovereignty. Fadil Kaboob and Nango Sambasilla are two of the signatories to the open letter. Africa's pandemic response calls for reclaiming economic and monetary sovereignty. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we, we could say that overall this is um, an issue for all African countries. Uh, even so, they have, um, let's say, different degrees of monetary sovereignty. Uh, let's say that, for example, that uh, South Africa, which is the third uh, second biggest economy in Africa has more monetary sovereignty than, for example, the Republic of Central Africa, which belongs to a monetary union. So there are different degrees. There is a spectrum, but the pandemic has shown that African countries uh, suffered from this lack of monetary and economic sovereignty. We saw that at the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, namely through this uh, debt issue because you know that, and Fadel maybe will expand, will expand on that, uh, when you borrow uh, on, uh, you, when you in foreign currency, that means that you're somehow you uh, compromise your, your monetary sovereignty. And many African countries uh, had been more or less heavily uh, indebted in foreign currencies. And so the ability to service this debt has been uh, somehow made more difficult with this pandemic. And we'll get to that debt in a moment. Fadil, uh, the letter you and Nango signed states, while Africa has so far been spared from the worst public effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, the subsequent economic shutdown has brought Africa's economic deficiencies and structural vulnerabilities into sharp focus. Fidel, the World Economic Forum website posted an article on April 6th, six months ago, stating Africa, with its long underfunded healthcare systems, is a time bomb just waiting to explode. The first few dozens of COVID-19 infections were detected in March, but the virus probably arrived weeks or months before, and Africa deaths from COVID-19 might far exceed what the world is witnessing right now unless major steps are taken. But we have little hope right now for a substantial financial support when countries Countries like the U.S. cannot afford to properly supply its healthcare workers with the personal protection equipment that they need. Yet three weeks ago, Fadil, Global Opinions editor at the Washington Post, Karen Atia, uh, ran a column headlined, Africa has defied the COVID-19 nightmare scenarios. We shouldn't be surprised, which include the line, while so much about the virus and how it operates remains unclear, sub-Saharan Africa so far has dodged a deadly wave of coronavirus cases. Fadil, to you, what explains why what was considered Africa's time bomb has not gone off yet? Well, it, it's um, well. First, uh, thank you for having us on on the show and for highlighting this uh, this important subject. So it's it's really not clear yet, one hundred percent, if if that is actually true that uh, the African continent and, uh, and countries in the region have completely dodged the, the bullet. I'm I'm originally from Tunisia, so I have family living there and 
have frequent conversations. Um, there are so many deaths in, in our neighborhood, in our own family that are not reported as, as COVID deaths because governments essentially gave up um, they, they shut down with the first wave and, and they couldn't keep the economy completely closed. So they just reopened and kind of gave up on, on, uh, on, on fighting the pandemic. They're just hoping for the best. So who are the people who are dying? It's, it's the old, it's the, it's the more, more vulnerable members of society from, from a health perspective. Um, so the, the numbers, I'm very skeptical about the numbers. That's number one. Number two, um, many parts of uh, the African continent have, you know, uh, dodged the bullet, so to speak, in the sense that they're, they're not high contact regions with, with the world of tourism, with the world of uh, international trade. Um, so that, you know, quote unquote, worked in, in their favor, at least in terms of the, the first wave, the arrival of the first wave. So there's, there's lots of, um, you know, uh, data points that need to be clarified and we'll find out over time. But so far, I'm, I'm skeptical about the numbers. But to the most important point here is that the, the pandemic has and, and the subsequent shutdown has um, heightened the vulnerability, the economic vulnerability of most countries in the African continent from an economic perspective, from a socioeconomic perspective, in the sense that it highlighted um, the lack of resilience to external shocks. And, and that in and of itself informed the policy decisions of governments to reopen and sort of ignore the public health uh, crisis as we're now um, dealing with, with the second wave of, uh, of the pandemic. And so those are the, the, the issues that we wanted to highlight in this, uh, in this open letter. Um, and the idea here is that these structural vulnerabilities have existed for a long time. As a matter of fact, has, have existed since the post-independence era, the, the early post-independence era, and have been made worse by the Washington Consensus, IMF, and World Bank structural adjustment policies of the 90s and, and the 2000s. Um, and, and those translate ultimately into this massive external debt. And I emphasize external debt, meaning that this is debt denominated in foreign currencies, not in the national currency of a particular African country. Because domestically denominated debt in the national currency can, can be managed. But when it's debt owed in a foreign currency, there is no way you can service that debt unless you earn those dollars via exports, via foreign direct investment, via tourism, uh, via opening up your economy to the, the global um, extractive industries. And those are the structural weaknesses that we've tried, we try to highlight here. And we're essentially calling for uh, a different kind of economic development model that moves away from those extractive strategies and builds more resilience to external shocks because external shocks are not just pandemics. External shocks are you know, financial crises uh, and, and these pandemics with the effects of uh, climate change are likely to um, become more frequent and more intense. Uh, so this is really the, the main reason we wanted to call for uh, reforms and, and the, the way we think about economic development. I'll give you an example because most people don't realize that, that the so-called solutions that are implemented as, um, as things that will help the African continent or developing countries in general are actually traps. 
So for example, when you look at the reason for this external debt that most countries have, and you dig into the details, you realize that that external debt is driven by massive imports of food and energy primarily for most countries. And when you recognize that if you encourage tourism as a solution for development, you end up bringing millions of people to the country um, in the tourism industry, which means you need to import even more food, which means you need to import even more energy to transport and heat and cool hotels and, and so on. So what seems to be a solution, tourism bringing millions of dollars to the country, turns out to be a trap in the long term because you end up subsidizing the tourism industry. And you're not the only country doing it because there's 120 other beautiful countries trying to bring tourism uh, to um, and create jobs domestically. So you end up racing to the bottom in that industry uh, and you end up subsidizing, you end up losing. So it turns out that tourism is it in itself an extractive industry in the same way that mining companies are extractive. Uh, so this is just one, one example. When you look at you know, foreign direct investment, you know, foreign companies relocating to Tunisia or Nigeria or Ghana or Senegal, um, it, it, they sell it as, as a great accomplishment. You set up this foreign company, you hire 500 locals to support them and their families and so on, which, which sounds great. But at the end of the day, you realize that the government, in order to attract those multinational corporations, has to give them free land has to lower the labor standards, environmental standards, has to subsidize the pension for the workers, has to give them uh, tax-free you know, activity for 10 years or more, has to subsidize electricity for them, which is fueled by imported fossil fuels, by the way. You, and you're not the only country doing that. There's another 150 countries around the world who are doing the same. So you're racing to the bottom. And at the end of the day, the foreign direct investment that's coming to that country, it's bringing all the technology, it's bringing all the raw materials, it's bringing everything from outside, using all the subsidies and lower standards that you're providing, and then taking the final output and selling it somewhere else in the global economy, and then taking the profits and repatriating those profits to shareholders, typically in the, in the global north. So that's another form of extraction from developing countries that goes unrecognized. So we're trying to highlight that the solutions that they tell us will help developing countries, foreign direct investment and tourism and export-oriented growth and all of that are actually traps. And we know this because the data tells us this is the case. So I'll, I'll close this statement with just one data point and then maybe my colleague Ndongo will, uh, will pick it up from here. If you divide the world into two groups, rich countries and poor countries, and net out all the financial transactions for exports and imports, including charity and foreign aid and everything, and you figure out where does the money flow at the end of the year, we're talking about $2 trillion moving from the global south to the global north annually. And this number has been on the rise for decades. And if we have this conversation in five years and 10 years, that number will probably be $5 trillion, maybe more. This is what we're talking about. It's an extractive global system. It's unsustainable politically, financially, ethically, environmentally. That's the model that we want to unpack, undo, and redesign. Size matters. Size matters. Swift Kyle
Whiskey. Hey, what's up, Kyle? You want to go to the bagel dumpster? Not right now, Jess. I'm kind of worried about Jamie in there. He doesn't seem himself. Oh, you mean he's not acting evil, paranoid, and kind of mean? Oh, no, I'm sure he's still all that. They they threw away my newspaper blankets this morning. Said it was a fire hazard or something, but... Nah, he, he looks real upset. Huh. Yeah. He does. Do you think somebody was nice to him and he can't handle it? Maybe we should ask him. Hey, Jamie, you okay in there? Oh, hey. Hey, guys. Hey, guys? Where's the snide remark about my light fingers or Kyle's heavy odor? Uh, not, not today, guys. I'm, I'm just not in the mood. Something must be really wrong. This ain't like you. And it smells real ripe on account of sleeping on that flooded part of the basement all week. Yeah, you, you have an odor. It's okay. Okay, what is going on here? Well, the radio station keeps going on and off the air. It's really frustrating. It's the damn connection to the tower. Can't you fix it? Got (sighs) $200,000? It's the internet provider we use, that X Limitless. Oh, yeah, the easy, awesome one. Ha, more like the one that always drops out. It just kills our signal. I think I can solve the problem, James. You? Kyle, last time you did anything with the internet, it ended up siphoning everyone's credit cards to Latvia. As seen memorably in Size Matters 74. Thank you, Jess. Now seriously, I know we can fix Uh, this. Fine. I'm weak. Kyle, what's your idea? Undertown's internet. Uh, what with the who now? I got some guys down here in Undertown who got their own nuclear web thing. Hey, I don't understand it, but they get all the porn they need. Is it Undertown porn? Wait. Don't, don't answer that. Hey, you were the one that sent me all the links to the sandwiches. That's food poor. You know, never mind, Kyle. Sure. Have your mole men come by and talk to me. I've fallen that far. Dang, what the heck is that? That is a 30-meter Earth station. It looks like a giant satellite dish. Is the Copro's roof going to support that? Uh, you know, I hadn't thought of that. It's over Billy's place. If anything happens, I'm sure it'll be fine. What a tender heart you have. Yeah, but check this out. Kyle actually made good. Wow, clear as a bell. Yeah, even better. These guys are installing it for free. All I have to do is broadcast some crap in the overnight hours. Man, it's saving us thousands. Like infomercials? Are you allowed to do that? No, it's more like folk music and some avant-garde stuff. It's, it's not real different than what we actually do anyway. And if by God, Jess, if you tell them that... Hey, come on. You know I'd never yuck your yum. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. This is just taking a lot out of me. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Uh, when the radio goes down, you can't make the regular offerings to your Dark Lord and Master. Yeah, exactly. Wait, how did you know about that? Hey, Jameson, it looks like we're all set and locked in up here. I just got to give you the tape for the overnights. Kyle, listen to some of this stuff. It's, it's kind of weird. Are you sure this is what they want? Yeah, that's what Igor tells me. Okay, hell with it. Kyle! Jess! What the truck in? The guy gets some shut-eye around here? It's four in the afternoon, and I just got a visit from the FBI. Now, what does that stand for? Don't play dumb with me, Jess. Kyle's friend, Igor, was transmitting spy signals overnight on our air. All those goofy numbers was spy stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, the FBI was super pissed. Jeez, I'm sorry. I just wanted to keep the radio on the air. I guess I got to take all that stuff down now. Huh? I'll get the hand. Uh, well, mm, actually, no. Huh? Yeah, the FBI let us off the hook. As long as 
we broadcast some of their spy stuff. The FBI spies? Yeah, all the time. It's usually on people trying to find out why the cops shot their kid or grandma's protesting pollution. Stuff like that. How patriotic. Oh, you know it. Gotta keep America safe. So everything worked out? That's unusual. Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, somebody's usually pretty badly injured by this point in the skit. Yeah, I mean, radio's on the air. The internet's better than ever. Yeah, I guess that's a win. Yeah, well, I guess we better play the theme. Ooh, look at this. An email from a Russian gas company. We're wealthy with stock. Oh, all I gotta do is click this link. Jamie! I'll get the hammer. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump calls for the Department of Justice to indict Obama, Biden, and Clinton. Trump's aides gave big donors insider info on the pandemic. Republicans signal a return to austerity in an attempt to torpedo a possible Biden presidency. Virginia's governor was targeted, and Barrett says nothing in her hearings. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1359, October 9th. Trump berated his own cabinet officers for not prosecuting or implicating his political enemies declaring that Attorney General William Barr would go down in history, quote, as a very, very sad situation if he did not indict Democrats like Joe Biden and President Barack Obama. He also complained that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had not released Hillary Clinton's emails, saying, quote, I'm not happy about him for that reason. He also criticized the FBI Director Christopher Wray, quote, he's been disappointing unless Bill Barr indicts these people for crimes, the greatest political crime in the history of our country, then we're going to get little satisfaction unless I win, and we'll just have to go because I won't forget it. These people should be indicted. This was the greatest political crime in the history of our country, and that includes Obama and it includes Biden. He's got all the information he needs. Barr wants to get more, more, more. They keep getting more, and I said, you don't need any more. Trump declined a virtual debate after the Commission on Presidential Debates moved to strike in-person appearances on October 15th. Trump claimed it was a waste of time and said, quote, but they can cut you off whenever they want. Joe Biden's campaign will instead hold a virtual town hall on ABC. They offered to do one final debate on the 22nd. It is unclear if Trump will accept. Trump is trailing badly in the polls and was widely seen as the loser of the first debate. Also, as concern rises over Trump's erratic behavior, since being diagnosed with COVID, Democrats said they will discuss invoking the 25th Amendment. That gives the power to remove the president and have the next in secession take his place. Trump gave a rambling interview yesterday in which he attacked his own allies and called for Biden to be jailed. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made the announcement public during a press conference. Congress can't order the removal of a president with a two-thirds vote in both chambers. Trump responded claiming that, quote, Crazy Nancy is the one who should be under observation. She's crazy. Trump also retreated Republican allies who basically claimed he wouldn't put it past Speaker Pelosi to stage a coup. The coronavirus outbreak has infected at least 34 White House staffers and other contacts. Dr. Anthony Fauci called the Rose Garden ceremony to introduce Trump's Supreme Court nominee a super spreader event. D.C. Health Director LaQuintra Nesbitt and health officers from nine Virginia counties and cities have asked anyone who worked in the White House in the past two weeks to get tested. Meanwhile, Trump claimed he might have contracted COVID-19 from a Gold Star family. Trump said that, quote, he figured there would be a chance he would become infected with the coronavirus because Gold Star family members come within an inch of my face. They want to hug me and they want to kiss me, and they do. In fact, no attendees at the Veterans Group event has tested positive. 
and Trump tried to require personnel at Walter Reed Medical Center to sign NDAs before they could be involved in his treatment. At least two doctors refused to sign the agreements and were not permitted to be involved in his care. And Trump wanted to rip open his button-down shirt to reveal a shirt with the Superman logo underneath it. As he left Walter Reed Medical Center, he did not pull that stunt. Day 1360, October 10th. Trump's tax records show that more than $21 million was routed from a Las Vegas hotel Trump owns with a partner, Phil Ruffin. The payout was unusual in that it came after banks declined to loan money to Trump for his allegedly self-funded campaign in 2016, fearing he would use that money to finance his run for president. The payout flowed through a company called Trump Las Vegas Sales and Marketing that had no previous income. The money was characterized as a business expense. That money then apparently was put into Trump's campaign. The move appears to be at least a violation of campaign finance law and may indicate fraud. Trump forced the State Department to commit to releasing at least some of Hillary Clinton's emails before next month's election, resurrecting a four-year-old issue. Trump succeeded in compelling Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to announce he would make public the emails, even as the Attorney General resisted pressure from the President to prosecute Democrats. Trump has spent the week badgering to indict Democrats connected to the original investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, specifically naming Joe Biden and President Barack Obama. Meanwhile, federal prosecutors charged a top Republican fundraiser for conspiring to act as a foreign agent. Elliot Broidy, a former top fundraiser for Trump, had agreed to lobby the Trump administration and the DOJ to drop the investigation of the embezzlement of billions of dollars from the government of Malaysia. A coughing and audibly fatigued Trump told Sean Hannity he's healthy and ready to hold rallies. Doctors and public health experts, meanwhile, called that move reckless. Later, Trump held what his campaign called a radio rally, in which he dialed into Rush Limbaugh's show for two hours. Trump also appeared briefly on Saturday afternoon in front of hundreds of chanting supporters gathered at the White House. Trump spoke without a mask and without any acknowledgement he still might be contagious. His short speech, delivered from the Blue Room balcony overlooking the South Lawn, was the first time he had been seen in public since leaving the hospital. Day 1361, October 11th. An investigation shows that over 200 companies, special interest groups, and foreign governments patronized Trump's properties and then reaped benefits from him and his administration. Nearly a quarter of those patrons were not previously reported. Tax records, along with membership rosters from Mar-a-Lago and the President's Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey, reveal just how much money this new line of business was worth. 60 customers with interests at stake before the Trump administration brought his family business nearly $12 million during the first two years of his presidency. Almost all saw their interests advanced by Trump or his government. Trump's children and their families cost taxpayers at least $240,000 in room rentals at Trump's own properties for Secret Service protection. Each time Eric Trump, Trump Jr. and Ivanka visited Trump properties for family business, Trump's company charged the Secret Service for the rooms. Trump Jr. had previously claimed that the Secret Service always stays for free. Meanwhile, Trump's son Eric angrily denounced an investigation showing that more than 200 companies obtained favors from Trump while patronizing Trump's properties. Eric Trump deflected when asked to comment on that investigation. He denounced the news media, insinuated financial impropriety by Joseph Biden Jr., and claimed his father had lost a fortune as a result of being president. Facebook permanently banned a marketing firm working on behalf of a pro-Trump student organization called Turning Point USA, an inclusive conservation group. It was described as a troll farm who used fake personas to comment on news stories to praise Trump and denigrate Joe Biden. 
five officials suspended from the government's global media agency sued its chief executive and his top aides, claiming they repeatedly broke the law in seeking to turn a news service into a mouthpiece for a pro-Trump propaganda. The lawsuit asserts that Michael Pack, the chief executive of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which runs Voice of America, interrogated journalists of the service we believe were critical of Trump. In another episode, Pack pressed the chief of Voice of America's Urdu service over whether it had published enough content about civil unrest over the summer in America that highlighted the effect of what he called mass rioting. Pack was previously an independent filmmaker closely connected to Steve Bannon. He had no leadership experience in broadcasting. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, said the Trump campaign has featured him in an advertisement without his consent and misrepresented his own words. Dr. Fauci said in a statement, the use of my name and my words by the Republican campaign was done without my permission. The actual words were taken out of context based on something I said months ago, not about Trump, but regarding the effort of the coronavirus task force. Day 1362, October 12th. Republican senators appear to have torpedoed bipartisan stimulus talks over a $1.8 trillion offer to Democrats. Trump himself has whipsawed the talks, first calling them off, then asking for his Congress to, quote, go big. In response, the Republican conference is said to have berated the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Trump's Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about the revived negotiations. The Senate instead appears fixated on confirming a Supreme Court justice instead of providing badly needed aid to Americans. Those hearings begin today for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who, if confirmed, would become the youngest and least experienced judge to sit on the court. In her opening remarks, Barrett told senators, quote, the courts should not try to make policy, leaving those decisions to the political branches of government. Barrett, who is a staunch Catholic conservative and a member of the Federalist Society, is widely seen as a swing vote to overturn decisions on abortion, health care, and gay rights. However, in a signal, I found the American electoral map is now tipping blue. Jamie Harrison, the Democrat, challenging Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, raised an astonishing $57 million. That is the highest quarterly fundraising total for any Senate candidate in U.S. history. The total reflects national frustration with Graham, a key ally of Trump, who is overseeing Barrett's confirmation hearings and Republicans in general. Trump returned to the campaign trail, kicking off four straight days of rallies. Trump asserted he is immune to the coronavirus. Quote, I feel so powerful. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women. Just give you a big fat kiss. The White House blocked a CDC order requiring all passengers and employees wear masks on all public transport in the United States. That order was drafted under the agency's emergency quarantine powers and had the support of Alex Azar, who is the secretary of HHS. The White House Coronavirus Task Force, led by Vice President Mike Pence, tabled it. Mitch McConnell claimed that the Senate's first order of business when it returns will be vote on a, quote, targeted coronavirus relief bill. However, the two sides remain far apart. Nancy Pelosi rejected an offer from the White House saying, quote, Trump only wants his name on a check to go out before Election Day and for the stock market to go up. Trump, meanwhile, tweeted that Congress should, quote, go big or go home. Also, McConnell laughed at Americans suffering from economic pain during the pandemic. During a debate with his Democratic opponent, Amy McGrath, McGrath had blasted McConnell for his lack of action on further stimulus. McConnell responded by chuckling. Georgia voters overloaded polling places in the first day of early voting as state and local officials reported glitches with new touchscreen voting. Over 14 million Americans have flooded voting booths as early voting began in America. Day 1363, October 13th. 
Judge Amy Coney Barrett dodged most questions at her confirmation hearing while claiming she was not on a mission to destroy the Affordable Care Act and would, quote, not be used as a pawn to decide this election. However, Barrett refused to say if she would recuse herself from cases involving Obamacare given her past critical comments on it or from cases involving the election. Barrett cited the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg for her reticence. In fact, Ginsburg, at her own confirmation hearing, was quite forthcoming about her views, especially on abortion, calling it, quote, central to a woman's life and her dignity. Members of an anti-government paramilitary group discussed kidnapping Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. That revelation came during the arraignment for 13 men charged with the attempted kidnap and murder of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Northam and Whitmer were targeted because of their aggressive lockdown orders in an attempt to restrict the spread of coronavirus. Trump openly encouraged right-wing protests against both with calls to, quote, liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia. Meanwhile, Eric Trump canceled a campaign event at a Michigan gun shop after a former employee at that shop was linked to the domestic terror plot against Whitmer. The Supreme Court has allowed the Trump administration to shut down the census count ahead of schedule. That raises fears Trump is to attempt to exclude unauthorized immigrants from the count. The decision appears to be explicitly political. Under the old deadlines, the winner of the presidential election is to give Congress the population totals. Excluding undocumented immigrants from apportionment calculations generally benefits Republicans. Trump has again asked the Supreme Court to block a lower court ruling that would give the Manhattan District Attorney's Office access to his income tax returns. If the Supreme Court agrees to hear his appeal, it will be the second time the court has heard that case. In July, the Supreme Court ruled that presidents are not immune from investigation. Trump's tax returns also have already been leaked to the New York Times. Trump continued to attack Fauci, tweeting that Fauci's pitching arm, quote, is far more accurate than his prognostications. That came after Fauci demanded that the Trump campaign refrain from using him in campaign ads, calling it outrageous and terrible and it would come back to backfire on the campaign. Fauci added, quote, I'm not going to walk away from this pandemic outbreak no matter who's the president. Also, a federal judge dismissed an attempt by the Trump campaign to make ballot drop boxes in Pennsylvania unconstitutional. The judge ruled that the campaign has no standing because they provided no evidence of voter fraud. Day 1364, October 14th. A federal prosecutor appointed by Attorney General Bill Barr to review Obama administration's officials' unmasking of unnamed individuals and intelligence reports found no evidence of wrongdoing. That finding torpedoed an off-repeated claim by Republicans supposing nefarious intent. U.S. Attorney John Durham told the department's inspector general he found no evidence that U.S. intelligence agencies had planted spies in the Trump campaign. In response, Barr again publicly rejected the conclusion that the FBI's probe into Russian interference in the 2016 election was justified. It is the third time that Barr has refused to accept his department's own findings. Meanwhile, Trump refused to say if he would keep Barr as his attorney general. Quote, I have no comment. Can't comment on that. It's too early. I'm not happy with all the evidence I have. I can tell you that. I'm not happy. Also, the Justice Department argued in court that Trump's tweets that he had, quote, fully authorized the total declassification of all documents related to the Russia investigation should not be considered as a real declassification order. BuzzFeed News cited Trump's tweets in a motion to gain access to Mueller's unredacted report as part of a Freedom of Information request. 
Microsoft says it has seized a large botnet run by Russian criminals that could have affected America's election infrastructure. The company won a court order to seize servers used by the TrickBot botnet. Microsoft said there was evidence the botnet was to be used to lock up voter registration systems. Meanwhile, California's Republican Party admitted to placing more than 50 unauthorized drop boxes for mail-in ballots in LA, Fresno, and Orange Counties. The falsely labeled official drop boxes were placed near churches, gun shops, and Republican Party offices. The state told the party to remove them. The White House is supporting an alleged group of scientists arguing for a herd immunity strategy to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. Administration officials pointed to a petition that thousands of alleged doctors and scientists have signed arguing against lockdowns and calls for a reopening of businesses and schools. However, the signatures on that petition include names such as Dr. Johnny Bananas and Dr. Person Fake Name. Also, the White House embraced a deeply questionable study claiming herd immunity could be obtained at less than 20% of population infection. This is false. To achieve herd immunity, most scientists believe 60 to 70% of the U.S. population would have to become infected. Overall, just 8% of America has been infected with COVID-19. Day 1365, October 15th. Trump's aides gave wealthy party donors advance warning of the pandemic at a time when Trump was publicly claiming the threat was non-existent. In February, at several briefings for investment bankers and donors, Trump staffers impressed upon listeners that the pandemic would do major economic damage. In turn, the elite traders gained financial advantage from the briefings during a chaotic three days when global markets were teetering. Nearly everyone who benefited from the insider information was a wealthy Republican donor. Meanwhile, American employers shed workers at a staggering rate this week as another 900,000 people filed for unemployment. Eight million Americans have been pushed into poverty due to the pandemic and the unwillingness of Senate Republicans to pass a relief bill. In a related story, a Senate Republican strategist privately confided to Bloomberg News that a key Republican goal is to lay the groundwork to revert hard to austerity if Joe Biden wins the presidency. The goal is to cripple the possibility of any serious stimulus effort next year, even amid widespread economic carnage. Per Bloomberg, quote, the thinking is that it would be very hard politically to agree on spending trillions more now and then in January suddenly embrace physical restraint. The goal appears to be to cripple the Biden presidency. Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett declined to answer questions about Roe versus Wade, but made it clear she opposes abortion rights. She also refused to answer questions about presidential power, including whether or not a president could defy a Supreme Court ruling or pardon himself. Barrett's confirmation hearing was jolted when Chair Lindsey Graham called the 1950s, quote, the good old days of segregation in reference to her beliefs. Barrett is widely expected to be confirmed along party lines. Her confirmation hearings wrap up today. The pandemic is now in a second wave. Cases are now trending upwards in 39 American states, pushing the country's case curve to its highest level since August. The Northeast, Midwest, and Mountain West are now seeing major outbreaks. The seven-day average in the U.S. is now at 60,000 cases a day. Overall, deaths in the U.S. during the pandemic are 85% higher than in comparable high-income countries. New questions have been raised over the shooting of an anti-fascist activist who is alleged to have killed a man in self-defense. Four officers fired more than 30 rounds at Michael Reynal after he was named in the killing of a man during a pro-Trump rally in Portland. Initial reports from police claimed Reynal was armed. A review cast doubt upon those claims. Trump had explicitly called for Reynal's extrajudicial execution during an appearance on Fox News and then celebrated his death during the presidential debates. 
The Department of Justice has sued the author of a book about her relationship with Melania Trump, claiming that Stephanie Winston Volkoff violated a non-disclosure agreement. Vincent Volkoff managed Trump's inauguration and then served as an unpaid advisor to Melania Trump. It is at least the third such suit the DOJ has filed against a political foe of the Trump family. In a related story, the DOJ argued that Omarosa Mangold should pay for a, quote, $1 million ad campaign as a corrective remedy during this election campaign. Campaign finance experts said that if Mangold were to do that, it would effectively represent a campaign contribution and a deeply illegal one at that. Outside experts were dumbstruck that the DOJ, quote, would put that in writing. 62% of voters say the Supreme Court should uphold Roe v. Wade. 58% of voters disapprove of Trump's handling of the pandemic. Biden has opened up a 17-point lead over Trump in a national poll conducted by ABC. These are the Trump Diaries. This week, we're pleased to debut music from the Boston Typewriter Orchestra, which is exactly what you think it is. This is Butterfly Bit from their debut release, Workstation to Workstation, available now on Bandcamp. Special thanks to Brendan Emlett Quigley.
This is A-W-C-Y-F-M. Researchers have determined mm-hmm. a way to recycle medical waste into cattle feed. Now, now you me- did say this is food related. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so what happened was there was the research engineers at Tyson Meat Products mm-hmm. collaborated with medical sciences uh, scientists from the Mallon College of Nutrition mm-hmm. to uh, breed and uh, make augmentations onto dairy cows to allow them to accept and ingest medical waste, digest it entirely. Fascinating. Um, it is. It is. It's incredible. Uh, as what, what what is what is medical waste? Medical Rowan? medical waste is the uh, um, what's left over at the hospital. Um, right. Bedpans. Uh, uh, the things that would be found in bedpans. Needles. Uh, um, yes. Stethoscopes. Uh, um, absolutely. Lab coats. Uh, various tissues. Um, mm. And. Uh, and uh, fluids as well, like human tissues. Yes, yes, presumably, unless it was a, a veterinary um, situation, and that's they've managed to feed cows veterinary waste uh, quite a while ago. Mm. But um, no, now it is capable. We are able to, according to these researchers, okay. be able to divert medical waste. Away from the incinerator, where it would normally go, there's normally this, this these these nutri- this nutrition and this energy is merely burnt to create pollutants that get sent up into the atmosphere. Right, but which now, is not good. No, of course not. It, it's it's horrible for the environment, and more importantly, it's a waste. It's huge waste. And but now, I believe it's medical waste. I, you understand it, but now it's medical waste to milk. Because these dairy cows, they've milked the cows, mm-hmm. the researchers over at uh, uh, the Mellon College, sure. and they've taken, they've done tests, and they have found that to be 95% free of common pathogens and toxins. 95% free? Well within FDA uh, regulatory limit. Broadcast every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.